New York City stores come and go, but one fixture that's lasted generations on the city's Upper West Side is Zabar's at the corner of Broadway and 80th. Referenced in scores of movies and TV shows, Zabar's has been a Jewish-owned family business since 1934. Their website says it all. New York is Zabar's. Zabar's is New York. Zabar's has to be experienced in person to be truly understood. Joining us to discuss a new book on the history of Zabar's and the family that built it, David and Willie Zabar. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, before we get uh, to our special guest today, which I know you're super excited about, this is this is like a New Yorker's dream, right? This is like Zabar's is on the podcast. We are ready for Zabar's. Like we're in Chicago, we're in LA, we're in Miami. We're saying like, oh, I remember that. I've seen that TV show reference. Yeah, You're like, this is it. I'm preparing for this podcast like, like it's... The president of the United States. I mean, I'm, I'm approaching it like I was there yesterday buying locks. So why not have them on the pod today? Um, so we should do yeah, it live. Am, we should do it live. We you should know, do it live. A, that, we should do it. it live with a tasting or something. Maybe mm, next time. Mm. Well, you have right. to ask them about the salmon. I hear the salmon is very good. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Okay. Listen, a couple of big things happened uh, that we've been looking at for a while. I, I think we can't move on without talking about it. One. The Senate had a series of procedural votes on non-binding motions to instruct conferees on a big China bill. Now, that's a lot of gobbledygook insider talk, which basically means it's non-binding language, a motion of the U.S. Senate to tell the people who represent the U.S. Senate in a negotiation between the Senate and the House to reconcile two bills for what is called a conference report to come out uh, a final China regulatory, China policy bill that's been in the works for many months. This is an opportunity sometimes not to have uh, actual amendments or things that are truly related to the core of the bill, but to develop issues that people want to talk about, put them into something that the parliamentarian says is acceptable within the rules and put them on the floor for a vote. And they really are sort of either symbolic and or test votes for future legislation. Couple very relevant to talk about. Number one, Senator Ted Cruz uh, had a motion to instruct conferees that the Senate believed that it was necessary to keep terrorism sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran. Very big deal there because obviously to go back to the old JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, or what's being negotiated, what I call JCPOA minus, would require lifting those terrorism sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran. At least that's what's been offered by the administration. Vast majority of the Senate, we're talking over 90% of the Senate, voting for that motion to instruct saying that it is necessary to keep terrorism sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran. Okay, that's a big deal. The bigger deal people are looking at was an amendment, a motion put forward by Senator Lankford. Senator Lankford had a motion that was really very specific, saying that we would not, we, the U.S. US Senate, should not accept, should reject any new Iran deal that did not cover terrorism, did not cover Iran's missile program, 
and that removed the IRGC, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, from the foreign terrorist organizations list or that removed any sanctions on the IRGC whatsoever. So basically, really, with the, without the nuclear criticisms, all the non-nuclear criticisms of the JCPOA and what we believe could be in a future deal laid out in a very tight motion, put on the floor. We understand from reports the White House fought it, opposed it, asked Senate Democrats to try to get out of the vote. Senator Langford said he wouldn't get out of the vote. He wanted the vote to go forward. And sure enough, it cleared that big 60-vote threshold for cloture. Right Now, in this case, he didn't need it, but it was a 60-vote threshold vote. It cleared with Democrat support, including Majority Leader Schumer and many other Senate Democrats, bipartisan, viewed as a major political rejection to the administration uh, of their policy and potentially a test vote for the future if a deal went forward that didn't meet that criteria and was subject to a vote of the U.S. Senate. I've said a lot as an opening. Obviously, my characterizations, my views. Uh, Jared, I'll let you respond. I mean, I love that you are paying attention to the procedural inner workings of the United States Senate. Um, you know, C-SPAN has to exist for somebody. And, and, and I'm C-SPAN glad- two. C-SPAN sorry, two. Sorry, C-SPAN two. Um, listen- I think this is what the Senate does, right? They pass sense of the Senate. Um, they pass these types of motions and, and and let the president and the administration know where they are on any given topic. Uh, I, I know we've been saying an Iran deal is imminent for months now. Um, we've been you've been talking about how bad it's going to be for months. Uh, I think that the Senate did its job and let them let the president know where they are on this particular one, and we'll see if and when there's a deal. Um, you know, how, how much the president wants to go to war with the United States Senate. Uh, so that's indeed, all I would and, say on that. And, and indeed, Senator uh, Chris Coons, Democrat uh, from Delaware, uh, often called the shadow secretary of state, very close to the president, was asked after his I vote for the motion, whether this was a rebuke of the administration, whether it means they will oppose uh, what's coming and very much hedged against it and simply said, is, I think very much in line with what you're saying is, we're give, we're giving our views. We're we're letting the president know where we want a deal to come out, and so uh, I do think it's it's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big message. I think you know, obviously, right now there's a halt in these negotiations, these talks. There's time for the president to reverse course. I would take the message from the U.S. Senate. I would change personnel. I'm going to be very bold here. I think Rob Malley, the special envoy for Iran, needs to resign. I I have obviously opposed Rob Malley uh, very vocally. I don't believe that I agree with him on pretty much anything, Uh, but I will say that it uh, it takes a lot for me to say it's time for somebody to resign because you have to stand behind that. And I believe after this vote, it is a complete vote of no confidence in the policy of the administration, and it's time for Rob Malley to resign from the administration. All right. As long as you're not calling for me to resign, Rich. No, 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 no. I would never do that. I would never do that. You you know, it, now, if you appeared on C-SPAN 2 and triggered me in the morning, that right, could happen. Right, right, right. That could happen. Now, now as a follow-up to our last podcast with Yehuda Kurtzer, we had uh, what I think is a conversation that really embodies why we're doing this podcast, where somebody like yourself and somebody like me who, who disagree on a lot of things can have what was at moments a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation about anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, where the line is, uh, and what we should be saying or doing to people who espouse these views. And it was a nuanced conversation. 
and it's had some legs, right, Rich? Uh, it, it did. Uh, just a couple of days after our podcast, uh, in the annual address to the National Forum for the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, its CEO, who we've had on the podcast, encourage everybody to go back and listen to our interview uh, with Jonathan Greenblatt, uh, gave a big speech, virtual speech. And I'm going to quote from it a little bit here and skip around a little bit because I'm going to make a couple of points uh, connecting to what you just said. First, he says this. To those who still cling to the idea that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, let me clarify this for you as clearly as I can. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I will repeat in bold, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. He goes on from there to discuss why he believes that. Obviously, this was a topic of our conversation, a question we talked uh, with Dr. Kurtzer about uh, he felt it was not the question to be asking of, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism, but when does anti-Zionism become anti-Semitism? Uh, obviously, uh, the ADL CEO being, being very direct there. So the question, I think, then skips to our conversation, which had to do with Jewish uh, members of the community who espouse anti-Zionism views. What do you call that? What is the word for that? And I'll, I'll go here uh, uh, to Mr. Greenblatt's speech. Quote, And how did organizations like Students for Justice in Palestine, also known as SJP, or the Jewish Voice for Peace, this name is not intended to be ironic, respond with increasingly dangerous language, goes on to chide those groups, SJP and JVP, uh, for their anti-Zionism views, and eventually lands on a word to describe SJP and Jewish Voices for Peace. He talks about QAnon. He talks about Marjorie Taylor Greene. He talks about President Trump and their extremism. And then comes back and says, when groups like Jewish Voices for Peace tweet out, Jews, hands off Al-Aqsa, when they absolutely know that such language is inflammatory, that the community literally is nowhere near the Al-Aqsa Mosque, let alone even permitted to pray there, in bold, that is extremism. So an interesting way of uh, finding uh, that uh, way to thread the needle of what do you call these Jewish groups, um, Jewish leaders, opinion leaders who speak out, and really their whole MO is anti-Zionism. He calls that extremism. Yeah, and you know, I don't think it's the last conversation we're going to have about this. Uh, and I, for one, am, am honored that we got to have what was a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation with Yehuda Kurtzer. I want to keep having it, keep getting people who are talking about this uh, and thinking about this on the pod and exchanging, exchanging ideas in the best traditions of our people. That said, our guests, uh, it's what people have been waiting for. We have the... Son of the founder of the great store of Zabar's in the Upper West Side, David Zabar, the grandson of the founder, Willie Zabar, who incidentally also hosts the Zabar's podcast, which I think you and I should be invited on as, as guests, but you know, we'll get to that in a minute. It's called Synergy. It's called Synergy. It's it called Synergy, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, salmon, salmon Synergy. Salmon Synergy. David Zabar and Willie Zabar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Good to be Excellent. here. So listen, first off, I, we we need we have a question that I would like to have answered for all of the podcast listening world. What makes a, Z, a Zabar salmon a piece of Zabar salmon? I mean, there's lots of good locks in the world, but tell us what makes yours unique. So if we're talking about salmon. We're gonna I'm gonna assume we're talking about smoked salmon. 
what you put on a bagel with cream cheese or with lemon and capers, however you eat your smoked salmon. So going backwards a little bit, we uh, work with our smokehouses to get the flavor and quality that we want. And whether it's pre-sliced and vacuum packed or you come to our service counter and we hand slice it for you, uh, we believe we have, we have the best product and the best taste. You know, we also have salty locks, belly locks, which, you know, your grandparents maybe ate that way back when because there wasn't mild cured smoked salmon. But most of the business, over 90%, is uh, smoked Nova Scotia style salmon rather than belly locks. Okay, so that's very helpful to to clarify that for. Us. Sorry, Rich. It sounds like you're about to say Wait, something. Was that was that the salmon you were you were looking for? Are these the droids you were looking for? Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's really what I wanted to know, and what I think uh, people want to know when when they're you know talking about the black magic that is salmon uh, and locks and all things in between. So yes, that, that was. Well, I'm that, a big fan of smoked salmon more than locks. I, I believe in smoked salmon. I was I was raised on smoked salmon, so I I commend you for smoked salmon. That, that was, <laughs> That's where I come down. If anybody knows knows my opinion, this is bipartisan support for smoked salmon. Uh, but I do want to know a little bit more about the family business, the history, the history of the family. Um, talk to listeners who may not be as familiar with Zabers. They've, they've seen it some reference in pop culture. They're not from New York. Talk to us. What 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 is Zabers? So we've been in our current location since 1934, but the story actually goes back earlier than that. Uh, so my great-grandparents came over to the United States separately uh, about 1920 and 1921. And they had a series of business ventures throughout the city, starting in Brooklyn, then moving into Manhattan. And eventually they were able to get a concession, get just one part of uh, a store on Broadway between 80th and 81st Street. And eventually were successful enough that they were able to actually buy the building from their landlord. Uh, and as time went on, they were able to buy the buildings on either side. And so now it's five storefronts wide. Interestingly enough, my great-grandparents, each of their families had a business in the old country. So my great-grandfather's family, they had a lumber yard, which had a small general store attached to it. And my great-grandmother, Lily, her family ran a tavern. So commerce and customer service are things that go back further than we have records. So they came from the old country presumably fearing, uh, fleeing anti-Semitism. Um, what's it like in this day and age where we're seeing an uptick in anti-Semitic attacks in New York and across the world, a war in Ukraine where, where your family hails from? What's it like having this Jewish icon business in a day where, while it's safer to be a Jew in America than it's ever been before, it's not without risk and not without trials and tribulations well let, let me speak to two parts of that uh in the 70s and 80s we helped bring uh relatives over to the united states uh back you know back when they they were allowing soviet jews to emigrate here uh but it is upsetting in the news to hear names and places uh that are the same as where my grandparents came from um, we, we, we are not thinking here on the Upper West Side I don't think we're conscious or thinking about uh, any upticks in anti-Semitism 
but we know that in general we you know we we, we, we still have to be aware that uh, it's going on and that our name is very prominent and, and I think I've read that um, some of your family was lost uh, in many of the pogroms uh, in Ukraine back in the day that that's what prompted the, the exodus. Um, is there family history that you've collected over time? Do you think about those that, that were, were back in Ukraine? Um, has there been any way to sort of memorialize them formally within the family? Well, uh, I mean, part of what's going on today is my, my sister, Lori, who pa- she passed away recently, but she has spent a number of years writing a family history. And it's a book that was just released recently. And a lot of that information, which I really read about for the first time, is family members that were killed in pogroms and why my grandfather really had to leave and, and leave town because he was being pursued because he had fought back. And uh, so there's a lot of family history in her book. Willie? Yeah. And the name of the book is? The name of the book is Zabar's, A Family Story with Recipes. And I think we're going to ask you a lot of questions about that book. You're, you're, uh, you're jumping ahead for us. Uh, we, we want to get there. But I, I want to just zoom back out again for, for people who have never been there, who have never been to the storefront, never been even to the Upper West Side, or maybe maybe they, they were there, they don't remember. They're from Chicago, they're from Cleveland, they're, they're from California. And your website talks about you need to experience Zabar's to understand Zabar's. What is a Zabar's experience for our listeners to understand? I think a Zabar is sort of like a bazaar, like a marketplace, because we have the cheese counter and the deli counter and the appetizing counter, and we have self-service cases and things hanging from the ceiling. And especially when it's busy and crowded, it's, it's very much like a marketplace and very exciting. And I don't think people experience that in, in most retail settings. And another part of Zabar is, is our customers get to know uh, the people behind the counter and the cashiers. And it's, it's very homey. It's, it's a, an experience that they like. Jared, do you, do you have a favorite cashier or um, salesperson? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say for all that are listening and all in the Zabar household, I apologize if it when it's not you, but Danny Zabar is my favorite Zabar's employee. He always takes very good care of me. He may or may not have given uh, my children a backstage tour at one point in time to see where uh, some of the chopped liver is made and uh, very much very much gave us that personal touch, but I, I can attest to it, Rich. You go in there and you feel like there are elements of being at the Shook in Jerusalem because it was designed originally, David, right, as a as a collection of, of stalls as opposed to being one store. That's true. It's like the Golden Medina. It's the, uh, the Shook. And... That's my uncle Saul on the intercom. He is 93 years old. We're disconnected there. <laughs> uh, weren't we on, on the phone? No, we're on my cell phone. Oh, okay. <laughs> Get some good color commentary here to hear <laughs> the backstage inner workings that Uncle Saul is calling over the walkie-talkie in the middle of the podcast. That's how fully engaged David and Willie Zabar in the inner listen, workings Listen, listen, okay. 
the salmon still needs to move, my friend. Okay, that's right. So that's right. It doesn't matter that they're recording a podcast. We got Uncle Saul. Does not on the radio. move itself. Does not move itself. Uh, I will say that my favorite employee is Rose, uh, who made an appearance uh, in "You've Got Mail." I thought she was wonderful in the movie. I don't know if she was a real person or an actress, but I enjoyed that scene as one of my uh, Zabar's references uh, as a Chicagoan. Well, we're referring back to "You've Got Mail." We did have a cash-only line at one point, and that was the, the interaction in the movie, was that someone was on the cash line and they wanted to pay by credit card. Uh, you know, since then, the whole credit card tap-and-go systems have gotten even faster than paying with cash. So it's, that, that line no longer exists at Zabar's. And while Rose and I, and I predict there will be a Zabar's crypto only line soon. That's that could be coming. I think Willie's working on that. Willie, are you working on the crypto only line for Zabar's? I, yeah, I'm trying to get us to all NFTs. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want to know what the salmon NFT salmon is just a is like. Fish. I, I, I need to picture that one. <laughs> That's right. I was want to say bring it back to to, to the question uh, on the business. You know, you have this family business, storefront on Broadway, Upper West Side. So many other family businesses have gone under, not just in New York, but around the country. What's unique about your business model that you've survived this long? Well, I I don't know if we'll make it into the podcast, but we just heard my Uncle Saul on the intercom. He's 93. So right now, there are three generations here in the store, myself, my uncle, and Willie Zabar. And that's part of it, is there's always been a family members involved. All of my children and my niece and nephews have worked in the store at one point, whether in high school, college, and uh, either they've gone into other things, some in the food business, but the experience of working here is, is part of their growing up and livelihood. And that's, I think, unique to Zabar's. So... I got to tell you, one of my favorite things about the book is there's a picture, David, of all four of your children working in the store. When did that happen? And and can you tell us the story behind it? Because I was, uh, I thought that that was really cool. And uh, knowing all four of your children in a different context, and we can talk about that in a second, to see them all working together and getting along happens, but you know, not every day. So t- tell us about that picture and how it happened. Uh, that photograph, which I took at the end of the day, was the day before Hurricane Irene was supposed to hit New York in 2011. And employees, uh, New York City was shutting down the subway system because of the impending hurricane. And this was pre the, the year before Hurricane Sandy. And the day of her Irene, it was sunny out. And people walking down the street, and it, it wasn't a big deal, which really was a bad setup for Hurricane Sandy the next year. But my uh, oldest, Ben, was a doctor, and he had to be in the hospital that night. And I said, well, why don't you stop in the store first? You know, your brothers will be here. And Danny was here working behind the counters. And Willie was in high school. His Labor Day trip was canceled. Michael hadn't gone back to college. And it was the only day that the four of them actually all worked together in the store at the same time. 
ever. And, and so is it, is it like the Soulsburgers who run the New York Times where you, you go to work at a New York Times related business before you go do whatever else you're going to do in life? Or is it, uh, is it, how does it, how exactly does it work? Do you have to work in the store first or, or is it, is it by choice? I think every family member wants to participate in the store, especially because their their father or parent, you know, that's where they are so much of the time and they want to be involved. You know, when, when Danny and Ben were very young, I'd be closing the store on Sundays at 6 p.m. and they would come in with my wife Tracy and they would want to sweep the floor and hang out and then we'd all go out to dinner. So these are when they're, you know, five, six, eight years old. And it's what they want. They enjoyed being part of it. And especially through high school and even college on vacations and days off, uh, the younger generation came in and they earned some extra money and they were part of the what was going on. And I'll say there was an expectation, certainly, that we did that, you know, in, in late high school, early college. You know, everyone had to kind of be initiated and, you know, learn to sell condition strudel. But then, you know, there was this idea that any given summer, you have to be doing something. If you get a job or an internship, doing you're doing a program somewhere else, that's fine. But if you're not, you got to be working at the store. And at the time, I felt like that was kind of a drag. But looking back, I'm actually really glad, glad to have had that experience. Just, you know, got professional exposure early on. Then also, you know, any anyone who's worked with customers uh, can tell you, you learn a lot about people that way. And you also learn if you want to be in retail or not. I have a question, and that is, uh, Willie, maybe you want to take it. What, what is it like living and growing up in New York with a very, very distinctive family name? Right. Like everybody in Manhattan, you know, certainly north of 59th Street, when they meet somebody whose last name is Zabar, like you, you don't not get the question. So what is it like growing up with the family name Zabar, which, you know, is up there in New York parlance with like having the last name Koch or, you know, Giuliani, uh, you know, w- what's it like growing up with the the name Zabar, Willie? Well, honestly, there's a lot of famous names out there, and to have ones associated with a store that people like, uh, I'd rather have it that way than you know be associated with any politician or anything divisive. Or you know, there's a lot of uh, names that you just hear. You're like, okay, that's a famous name, but like, why? Why is it famous? What are they actually known for? Or are they just known for being known? And it's kind of nice that the people who actually recognize the name, they say, oh, I can associate that with a specific store, with a specific vibe, versus if you don't know what it is, like you don't care, it doesn't mean anything to you. And when I hear the name Koch, I think, oh, across the street is the town shop, which is women's lingerie, and the Koch family has been running that for 60 years, which is separate from the mayor Koch. But if you're on the Upper West Side, <laughs> you may know the name Koch. And the town shop in Zabar's were the two longest standing family businesses on the Upper West Side. It were really the last two from the olden days, right? I believe so. Depends how you define olden days. So speaking of East Side and West Side, uh, so there's another branch of the Zabar family that does a lot of business on the East Side of Manhattan. And I always heard there was a, an urban legend about how the East Side Zabars and the West Side Zabars didn't quite get along. Is that actually true? Is there any truth there? Or, or can you set the record straight when it comes to uh, – East Side, West Side, Zabar family relations. And and for those of us who are not from New York, Rich Goldberg, can you explain what the East Side branch of the family does? Well, the on the East Side is my Uncle Eli, who is the the younger brother of Saul and Stanley, who are running Zabars. 
And uh, aside being the youngest and maybe not, and had felt he had had better ideas and more exposure to European and other other foods and traveled more, he felt a little like Willie Sutton and Horace Greeley. It was go east, young man. And uh, he went to the east side and he has many businesses, including Eli's Bread and, vin- and he had the vinegar factory, he has restaurants. And uh, we have pass- Passover over at his place for the last 20 odd years. And we sell his products and I've worked at his store uh, before I was here full time. Uh, my son Danny's worked for Eli. So it's all in the family, though Eli's and EAT is a separate business from Zabar's on Broadway. And there's only one Zabar's. That's the big misnomer. And like my dad just said, like we're all in very good terms. Like each of the three brothers, uh, Saul, Stanley, and Eli, they each host a different holiday. Like my dad just said, Eli hosts Passover, Stanley hosts Hanukkah, and Saul hosts Breakfast for Yom Kippur. So everyone's on good terms on a personal level. Is there is there friendly competition? You really don't hear the three of them ever talking about that. Every time there's a party, they just clump together. And it's, you know, you can tell this. there's not ill will. And we probably sell more Eli's bread products than any other store. The way I see it, Eli's is an empire. Zabar's is a city state. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I, I, have to, I have to, I have to contemplate that one for a second. Yeah. <laughs> so about this, while, while Ridge contemplates, um, I also uh, wanted to give a give a shout out to the Zabar family because, as as our listeners know, I talk about it from time to time. I am a volunteer firefighter in the incorporated village of Salt Air, and Willie Zabar and his three brothers, Michael, Ben, and Danny, are also volunteer firefighters. Uh, Willie, what's it like being a volunteer firefighter with three of your brothers? Uh, and does it ever, you know, is there ever any disagreement when it comes to the firehouse? I'm not going to tell you what I think, but <laughs> well, I would be interested to hear your uh, your your take on this. You know, it's very similar to working at Zabar's with these people. You know, it's, you know, you, you love each other. You're extremely close. You know each other very well. But that also means you really know how to push each other's buttons. And when you introduce a situation like either where there is, you know, there is a rank structure, there is hierarchy, there are, you know, at Zabar's, it's, you know, the idea of management uh, in the fire company, it's the, op- the idea of officers like yourself. Uh, so there's definitely friction, but, you know, we all go through these cycles of, you know, conflict, high emotion, res- resolution, and then, all right, we got to get back to work. Because at the end of the day, like, the work has to get done. You mentioned uh, the book uh, that's coming out uh, at the top of the interview. I want to come back to it now, written uh, by your recently deceased sister, David. Tell us more about the book, uh, what we should expect, what people will learn, not just the history, but I think uh, recipes as well. Okay. uh, One reference I want to make to the book is there's a photograph of Saul, Stanley, Eli, my mother, Judy, Devin, Carol, and my sister, Lori, all together a couple of years ago. And you know, it's one big family. So that should lay to rest any, any stories of any feuds or any conflict within the family. Uh, the book goes very deep into the history of what happened in Russia, how my grandfather got to the United States, what it was like in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And unfortunately, he passed away in 1950 
at age 49, which brought my father and uncle back into the store while they were in college to help my grandmother. So that's all part of the story. Uh, and then going through the 60s and 70s, which was a, lot, a big food revolution in the United States, and we brought in more European cheeses and breads. So we were always tr in touch with what was going on, and that helped Zabos grow throughout the years. David, what does it mean to your family to have this history documented? Well, family members learn things they never knew, which, which I think is pretty amazing. And I think it's going to make customers feel just much closer to the store and the family knowing more about it. So I just think it's a great thing. It's a great way to honor my sister. She spent many years researching. Uh, she was a researcher, and, uh, and she did many, many, many different things, but a great writer and researcher. And I think this book honors her. And uh, you know, I think it's kind of a new chapter in what's happening at the Zabars that we've become more public as a family. And I'm not sure where that's going, but I think it'll be interesting. So, David and Willie, question for both of you guys. What is your favorite recipe either in the book or something maybe that Tracy makes, which is your wife slash mom for David and Willie, or your favorite sort of family recipe that you would either make or would want made for you if you were feeling sort of down? Is it something out of the book or is it something else that you guys uh, kind of really wish is it a matzo brai is it cholin is it something <laughs> that you you really want that, that gives you comfort when you're going through all this well let me just say that as we we were raised in a more of a reform background cholin was is not part of my childhood <laughs> and i don't know i don't think lily my grandmother put a recipe for cholin to my sister in the book uh but talking about recipes, the the blintzes, the blueberry blintzes, is something that I'm looking forward to making. That's in the book. It's also in Zabar's blog, which Tracy, my wife, writes. has been writing every week a cookbook review and a recipe. And on our website, if you go to blogs, you you will find that somewhere. And and I just want to say. There are certain foods I only let myself eat at New Year's, and blintzes are one of them. So it is a very special place in my heart. Rich, I think you had a business I, question, right? I, I do. I have a couple of business questions before we head into the soft lightning round. Uh, one is, I know you do a, a pretty decent online business. At this point, how do you compare? What's the sort of difference between how much business you do at the storefront brick and mortar versus how much you're doing online, whether it's in the New York area or, or around the country? Uh, I can only say that during the uh, pandemic, the, the brick and mortar, we cut back. We had employees staying home for various reasons. They had children at home. They were older and they felt they shouldn't be working. Uh, and there were fewer New York City. There were very few people around, so we cut our hours. We certainly sold less product in the store, but the demand for mail order increased. You know, increased beyond 
with our available employees and social distancing and and delivery issues that uh, you know we could ship as fast as we used to but the business grew and mail order is still stronger than it was in 2019 uh, so now that the name seems to be recognized and more and people are looking for our products we expect mail order to continue to grow will it surpass our business in the store probably not anytime soon but uh, that's to be seen and when the pandemic started you know we were in a position where we already had this mail order operation in place we already had a dedicated it staff uh, so unlike some other businesses, we didn't have to scramble to get that figured out. Like we weren't hemorrhaging money for days and days or weeks and weeks until we can, you know, get that together. And we were also very lucky because we own the building. We didn't we didn't have a landlord breathing down our necks, you know, saying, hey, I don't care that you're not making as much money like we might kick you out. So we were compared to a lot of other small businesses. We were very lucky. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we've been able to you know, stick around to this point. Lucky or you had a lot of foresight in the late 70s when you guys purchased the building to, to purchase the building. You know, some, some call it luck, some call it tremendous business acumen. Well, yes. I mean, if late 70s in New York City were, was not a, a rosy time and people really were uncertain about the future of the city. And I think it was the right move by my father, my uncle, to purchase the building at that time and and the landlord was willing to sell at that time which was also good uh one more point about the pandemic is we were taking more phone orders people wanted to pick up they didn't want to go shopping and many customers either shopping once a week or they had moved out of new york city and they were just driving in every week or two and picking up and getting out of here and it's it certainly changed the way we were doing business. My, my one last uh, business question would be, um, you know, obviously this is a decades old family business. You're a family business still running that way. It, to a young person out there, a young family out there, some brothers and sisters who are thinking about taking uh, an entrepreneurial step like this, what advice do you have to somebody? Do, do you mentor people? Do, do you have lessons learned that you would give uh, to young people who are starting out or thinking about uh, doing something like this? Well, I think you have to do something that you enjoy doing. You have, in this type of business, you have to like retail and people and making people happy. And it's also very important to pay attention to the product that you're doing something different, that you're differentiating yourself from other businesses and putting your effort into delivering some some value to your customers uh, and that you're willing to put the time and effort into it. And your reasons for starting a business should go beyond the fact that you want to start a business. What do I know? But that just seems like, you know, it's like, hey, like someone wants to start, you know, oh, I want to make an app. It's like, well, is there already an app that does that? It's like, yeah, but this one's mine. It's like, eh, is that a good idea? I don't know. But what do I know? I've never started a business. All right. Now it is time for the lightning round. Some people would call it legendary. Um, Rich and I are two of them. 
So we're going to ask you a series of questions just to get a little bit more of a sense of who you are for people, as people. Um, and we can have an answer from each one of you. Um, favorite reference to Zabar's in any movie or TV show? For me, it's got to be Broad City, the part uh, where Susie Essman's character picks up the phone. She goes, hello, Zabar's. Don't you yell at me. <laughs> David? I think I have to go back to You Got Mail because that that's the, the film, the reference that really shows most of what Zabar's looks like. Well, I can't believe neither of you answered West Wing when Janine Garofalo talks you about- You are obsessed with the West Wing reference. I'm yeah, telling I know you, it's all it's, I ever hear about you know, is it's the one of those West Wing ones that reference. doesn't get a lot of ink. All right, Rich, you go. Okay. Is, the, is there a favorite Yiddish word or phrase that's been passed down in the family? Is, does the family business concentrate on a single favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Oi. Bubala. Oi. Bubala. Bubala. I, I, I may have to change my first answer. Is Jerry Nadler going into Congress with a Zabar shopping bag. When asked, his office asked what was in the shopping bag, he said a babka and the Constitution. <laughs> and, and and not to not to stick it in Rich's nose, but or eye, I think he was headed to the floor to uh, for the impeachment of Donald Trump when he had a Zabar's back. But we digress. Um, <laughs> Willie, do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? And it was a perfect babka. It was well, a perfect babka. <laughs> And, and, and Yiddish profanity is totally allowed here, Willie. So favorite other than, well, other than oi. Um, Boba Meister is pretty good. You use that a lot, Jared. Boba Meister, yeah. Boba Meister is, is one that I use in the firehouse. And on yes. this on this uh, pod, Rich would tell you. I think I, you were peddling a Boba Meister on the show. <laughs> the East, East West urban legend. I think, you know, some uh, yeah, Boba Meister yeah. is coming out here on the pod. It's Absolutely. like, oh, can you push fire? Right. It's a Bubba favorite Meister. thing you guys sell at Zabar's, and I'm looking for an answer for for each for Willie and from David. You, you want to go first? I love going to the cheese department and just seeing what's new and different. And I, I like older, stronger cheeses, and there, there's always something there. So it, it's not one particular item at this moment. My favorite item that we sell is it's near the coffee department by the pasta. We sell empty snail shells. <laughs> and we've always had them. I don't think we've ever actually sold one, but it's it's great. You know, I guess it's for like serving escargot. We do not sell escargot. Uh, maybe it's if you have a hermit crab. I don't know, but I just see it every time and I smile. I'm like, that's still there. Still got snail shells. That's from the 60s and the 70s, the French wrote culinary revolution <laughs> it's a vestige vestige from the revolutionary days fantastic fantastic willie zabar david zabar thanks for coming on everybody should check out the new book on the history of zabars by laurie zabar gentlemen thank you so much for joining the podcast it was a pleasure thanks for having us thank you bye now if you like this show Help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.